This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Sandy Hunt. And I'm Nick Ashburn. And we are live here on Sirius XM Channel 132 every Thursday from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern, which is 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific. We're replayed throughout the week and available always on the Sirius XM app. If you want to check us out there. I'm so I'm so distracted by that first song. We, we're really into this segment today um, because, first of all, it's a it's really, really important topic, but then... We were both reminiscing on our own childhoods and, and thinking about Free Willy. Yes. So that that was our song selection. We'll see if our guest, Sophie Lanfear, the director of Netflix's Our Planet, is of our generation and also recognizes the, the link to that tune. But we're excited for today's conversation, and we're glad that you are with us. We're going to be talking to Sophie Lanfear, who's the director of Netflix's Our Planet. If you haven't checked it out yet, this is a very, very, very powerful environmental documentary really focused on showcasing the beauty of the earth, but also being very uh, honest, very raw about the environmental impact that we're seeing in these ecosystems. Absolutely. So one of the things that I, I mean, I think I watched it when it first was released. And, um, you know, at first I was like, oh, it's going to be like planet Earth or, mm-hmm. you know, one of those, which I definitely watched back in the day. But then I realized very quickly that it's, no, this is actually about the devastating effects of climate change through different types of ecosystems. And I was like, wait, we need to have, you know, someone from this sh- this show on our show, Dollars and Change, to be able to talk about the effects of climate change and what, you know, potentially our listeners or what business can mm-hmm. do to hopefully, you know, chart a different path. Yes. And that's the, one of the great pleasures of this role and of this job and the chance that we can bring these conversations to our listeners so that all of you who watch this documentary on Netflix or, you know, see it covered in news media and ask what can be done, we're going to answer those questions for you. As Nick said, we're going to ask the bigger questions about what business as a whole can do. So Sophie, welcome to Dollars and Change. Hi, thanks, Sandy Nick. We're thrilled to have you with us. Before we get into the details about the segment and talk about all these important issues, tell us a little bit, you are a documentary filmmaker, obviously with a strong environmental focus. Tell us a little bit about your career history and the passion that sort of has taken you where you are. Sure. Um, I started a long time ago uh, at at university, actually. I did a degree in uh, psychology, zoology at Bristol University. Um, And I always had a passion for animals, really. I guess I was the classic sort of little girl when I was younger, just loved um, animals and nature. Uh, And then I realized you could kind of blend science with creative arts um, in the role of filmmaking um, and conservation was something you know having been out uh, to places like Africa and seen firsthand um, the conservation efforts kind of going on there uh, and then subsequently kind of with my job seeing uh, a lot of the kind of impact that humans are having on the planet um, so conservation has been kind of at the forefront of what I want to do and so when um, our 
Planet came along. I'd, I'd worked on many shows for the BBC over the years, the Natural History Unit. And this was the first time that a series had come along with conservation really embedded uh, at the heart of the documentary. Um, and the idea was kind of to make uh, a Planet Earth type series, but, you know, no longer can we ignore um, the kind of things that are going on around in the planet. And so we had to kind of make a blend of a series between entertainment, so keeping everyone, you know, giving what audience wants in terms of seeing nature and the beauty and wonderful parts that we have still left on this planet. But equally, we wanted to address some of the more difficult um, concepts uh, that, you know, we wanted to get across from a conservation standpoint. So it is interesting, Sophie. This is Nick. Um, and and I, I was struck because I watched uh, Planet Earth, I think, when I was in college, maybe in undergrad. And, um, you know, one of the things that's so interesting is that it was so beautifully filmed and you you get this really interesting and unique perspective and view of our planet and the different species, you know, fauna, <laughs> et cetera, on our on our planet and thinking about how that at least gave us a primer to be like, wow, what an amazing place mm-hmm. that we we have to live on. And then to sort of see that revamped here in a way that be like, hey, we need to pay attention to this or we're going to lose this whole thing, I think was a unique perspective. So what? tell us a little bit more about sort of the, the history of the type of work that you do, meaning like the, the conservation or more, tra- let's actually take a different route and say the more traditional documentarian film style on, on you know, wildlife or, you know, different environmental aspects and how this is different. Um, I'd say, yeah, in terms of the programs I've been, I've been working on, you know, I've done everything from kind of British focused wildlife kind of live shows, um, where we kind of focus really on the, on the problems facing Britain, but also like you say, it's always that balance of showing people, you know, we have incredible camera talent that works for us and what they kind of notice and see and spend hours and hours and hours out there to bring back to the audiences, the most exciting and engaging moments. Um, and yeah, we, I, I kind of, I guess, spent many years <laughs> before this series um, kind of building, I guess, the awe of nature. And it was hard, you know, I think we've come a long way in terms of public perception because it was hard to get the harder-hitting kind of conservation messages commissioned. Um, I think it was thought that the public don't want to potentially sit home of an evening and, and watch something that might be difficult to watch. Um, but I think that's changing. And I, I certainly in the UK... Um, with Rebellion Extinction now happening and other documentaries like, you know, Blue Planet 2 and the plastic um, situation, you know, slowly, I think, as we're putting a bit more influence into our filmmaking, it's now becoming kind of, you know, the public are saying that they're not standing for it either. They want um, answers and they want solutions and they want to be able to help. And I think highlighting something that, like you say, planet Earth, people, you know, that made people love the planet and care for the planet. And we need that. You had to have that first, that kind of building block of of people, um, you know, connecting with nature again. And then once you have that and you, and you say, well, hold on a minute, you know, it's, it's not as it seems always and, and we need to kind of tell the more important messages. So I think it's a combination of factors that's kind of landed our planet um, where it is today. So, you know, I want to remind... Uh you and of course our listeners you're, that we're on business radio right and and the show's mm. called dollars and change and can you give our listeners a little bit of a behind the scenes look as to how documentaries get made and how they get financed so if you're thinking about what an audience wants like why you know how did things get financed in the old days you know versus maybe what what a thing like a platform like netflix might be able to offer people too 
Mm. Um, it's kind of, it's interesting, actually. Um, I guess the BBC Natural Unit kind of has led the way in, in nature documentaries and how that's funded is very different to, say, Netflix's model. Um, you know, BBC pay a public licence fee that's everyone in the UK that watches it contributes to that, but given the kind of uh, scale of these projects, they, they run over four years and they're quite expensive to make. Um, so the public licence fee doesn't cover all of the costs. So we've always had to look to international money um, to fund these. And so in the past, it's been relationships with people like Disney and Nat Geo, who have, and now BBC Earth, which is the commercial branch, uh, internationally commercial branch of the BBC. And so they kind of bridged the gap in terms of um, the funding required that the license fee doesn't cover. Um, so it's a kind of, most documentaries are, you know, blended international money plus UK money. Um, but Netflix has, you know, has incredible kind of budgets and and uh, on its content and so uh, for our planet it was you know they input they're able to put up all the money for our planet um, which was great because then you're not affected by distribution you know the one the one problem of having lots of people put in to make these shows means that they all have their own distribution deals so you, you show it in the UK and then it gets shown in all lots of other countries but you can never have simultaneous release and I think that was really important to us on our planet was that because Netflix put all the money in it meant Netflix can put it out all over the world, in all their territories, all around the world, globally at once. And that gave us, you know, that's never been done before. It's never been done in natural history. And it gave us a, an immediate voice and an immediate platform so that everyone could see it simultaneously and that we could start this global conservation message um, and people could react and social media and all those things that kind of make the series much bigger than just something on Netflix. Yeah. So, and, yeah. And Sophie, you referenced earlier sort of saying, people are starting to want to watch this sort of thing. What did the numbers show? How is the response to Netflix putting this out? Do people want to watch this? Because you're right, it is It is tough to watch. It is not a feel-good film overall. Um, I would say, I mean, you know, Netflix don't even tell us how it's doing, so <laughs> we don't know. But um, they did release a press release uh, last month, I think, because they were quite happy with the performance, and they released publicly that... Um, they anticipated by the end of the first month 25 million households, which they, on average, that's three people per household. So somewhere in the region of a conservative figure being 75 million in the first month. So that's a huge audience globally. Um, and I'd say the response, certainly for me, has been very encouraging. People have found things hard to watch, but they haven't shied away from it. So it's great, great news. Well, we're certainly happy to hear that. That's, you know, you need to look a problem in the eye. And I was struck you know, as we were talking in the beginning about the power of seeing this, that for so many people, so, such a huge percentage of the population does not have the choice or or option of leaving where they live, of seeing the world. And it's so incredibly powerful now that technology can bring them these realistic, powerful views of other parts of the world. Because if you are, you know, in a landlocked you know, state in the center of the United States, you know, Kansas, Kansas, hypothetically, Where I'm from. we like, yeah, that's our, our, um, always kind of our de facto, uh, Midwest state there. Cause Nick's from there, but, um, you know, to know what this looks like and to sort of, you know, capture it as compared to where we were 10, 20, 30 years ago is incredibly powerful. So let's pivot to talking about that impact and what, you know, as, as the, you know, filmmaker here at, you know, what were you what were you trying to get across to viewers? Was it a balance of of beauty and 
you know, the, the hard realities? Was it the scope of the difficulties? What were some of your largest, you know, your biggest intentions with this? Um, I guess as you just hinted at, really, you know, there's a lot of people um, don't get the opportunity to travel or, or experience the world. And I'd say that the the impacts that we're having on the planet are, you know, you need to bring them home to everyone because they are kind of greater than some of its parts. So we're, we're having this influence globally. Um, and so in order to understand it, you have to have a global outlook. Um, and I think, you know, the, the series we... First and foremost, I mean, yes, it, it tackles some of these issues, but it, it has positive messages in there as well as negative messages. And we hope that on balance, that message was right. It gives hope on the one hand, like the humpback whales um, off the coast of South Africa are seeing in, in large numbers now. And that's kind of a positive sign that the kind of ban on commercial whaling in the 1970s uh, has meant that humpback whales can bounce back. So I think for us, it was important you know, we still want people to care and, and still want people to kind of immerse themselves and reconnect with nature. Um, and so that's, you know, the balance we've, we've been trying to achieve with the series. So let's continue to paint a little bit of a picture of what viewers would see in the documentary, because, you know, of course, if you are a Netflix subscriber, you are able to watch this. It is really gorgeous. And I, I commend you as the, as a director on this, um, such an amazing you know piece of work. Um, but, you know, for our listeners who haven't maybe seen it yet, what is a segment, you know, maybe one that you are personally involved in that you are, you know, you found really exciting or shocking um, and that you would want to help our listeners better understand today? Oh, gosh, there's lots of great moments. <laughs> I would <laughs> say um, the first program's a good one. So the, the films are all split up into habitats um, and the first program's kind of like how all the habitats are connected and then the remaining seven shows are take each habitat by habitat um, and kind of have a central theme. Um, but there's something for everyone. I mean, I love, I personally wasn't involved with it, but I love the dancing birds, um, the kind of courtship. I uh, thought routine. that was so interesting <laughs> and that they were like, they teamed up with their friends to be able to do it. Yeah, it's great. They're very cute little birds. But there, a lot of these clips are available if you don't have Netflix online as well, and there's an Our Planet site, ourplanet.com, which has a lot of additional content that's um, free for everyone to access. So, um, yeah, you can catch little clips. I think the dance birds is available as well. Um, what else was I involved with? The glaciers carving. I mean, that was unbelievable. That was in Greenland. Um, Greenland's losing ice. Um, it was ice sheet is, is essentially kind of has been diminishing for the last 30 years. Um, and so we were there to capture one of the carving events um, of the Stor Glacier, and that was just unbelievable. 75 million cubic tons of ice uh, fell off in one go. Um, just you can't fathom how, how much ice and the scale of it. And were you um, in a helicopter for that one? I was filming the helicopter. <laughs> I was on the side, luckily. I, yeah, it looks pretty dicey being up there with uh, chunks of ice bigger than cars, big truck-sized lumps of ice flying into the air. And um, yeah, we had to have a good pilot for that, Canadian pilot, pilot Jean-Michel. I'm, I'm just curious, how how were you able to put a number to that volume of ice? Um, the expert we had, um, so there's a, there's a guy from a university in, in the United Kingdom that um, studies Stor Glacier. And so we were able to give him the footage and show him which bit broke away, you know, when we filmed the front. And then from that, he calculated, he estimated how much um, ice was being lost in that carving event. 
Wow. I think I think Sandy's question was because I often say that I don't have any spatial reasoning, so I I could not <laughs> estimate that type of stuff. Well, ever. you know, it it is when you when you haven't seen as I haven't seen these parts of the world, the scale can you know just blow your mind. So I think you know the numbers sort of help to you know for some types of thinkers illustrate that. Um, certainly, the video footage is so powerful. In the segment you directed, the Frozen Worlds episode, <clears throat> how did you make the call on on what made the cut? What was you know were there things that were sort of too too gruesome and, and weren't included, or did you say, you know, the people need to see the hardest parts of this? Mm. Yeah, it was. Well, being tasked to make the Frozen Worlds episode, uh, very early on, I said to Alistair Fothergill, my boss, I was like, you do realize this is this can't be a positive ending film it's just it can't be because you know we're losing ice it's it's the most rapidly diminishing habitat on the planet and you know with with increased global warming it will disappear and he he understood that and he said no look it's fine in, in the blend of the series we've got a good balance so you know you you have the freedom to kind of tell a story you need to tell for frozen worlds which was an amazing thing for him to say so um the war sequence at the end which is um a very powerful sequence we went to film the, the largest gathering of walrus on the planet, 100,000 um, hauled out on one beach, and um, we, we got incredible images of that, but we weren't expecting to film the cliff falling, um, which, yeah, kind of shocked all of us, I guess, because it wasn't a story we were expecting to tell. And, um, and it was a very hard decision editorially how to cut that and how to... It's quite a graphic scene of walrus falling off cliffs, and... Um, we didn't want to turn people off or turn people away, but equally we wanted to get across, you know, what was happening. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a lot of discussion about how best to cut it, how best to tell that story. Um, and I think we got, I think we got it right. I don't think we were, you know, too gruesome with it. And that, but I think you get enough of it to, to realize that it wasn't just a one-off fall. It was, you know, multiple falling, well, hundreds of wars falling off the cliffs. Um, and so, and Sophie, yeah. I just want to, you know, not, I mean, a little bit of a spoiler alert, but I want to paraphrase, paraphrase one of the things that I heard one of your colleagues mentioned, perhaps in a behind the scenes segment, just, you know, for our listeners to understand that, you know, the walrus, um, I guess they're used to sleeping on ice, diving down for food and coming back up and sleeping on ice. And if the ice is melting, they're now swimming, you know, a hundred miles away to get food and they're not able to just sleep on ice, so they have to go to shore. And what you all are filming, you know, is when they get to shore and they're climbing these cliffs and they're just tired. And mm. they they kind of can't make it up or they, they fall off. And, and that's sort of what you're, what you're showing our, our listeners and, and the viewers, right? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, they're tired. They're exhausted from sort of, like you say, these, these greater foraging journeys they're having to do rather than just sitting on the ice and diving down from an ice platform. They have to come ashore, and um, they get these these haul out sites are getting increasingly um, tight for space, and um, they climb up the cliffs, and then they can't. Some work their way back down. They they realise how they got up there, and they they make the journey back down again. But the vast majority aren't able to compute that. So ah, uh, so they're sort of stuck, well, and, and they're so like, they're I just got to go back down. Exactly, mm. and then um, they sadly can't, and so they walk. You know, you see them teetering on the edge for days. Um, kind of turning around, looking over the edge, going back, turning around, going back, turning around, and eventually they're, they're driven by the rest of the, the boars below them have all left, and they can hear them in the sea, and, and they want to join them, and, 
you know, that's such a strong instinct to return to the sea that they, they have no choice, but, you know, they can't work it out. So they just kind of walk off. Yeah. And I think, you know, so often we hear about, you know, adaptation and, you know, animals figuring out a way, why aren't they moving more inland? But that happens over generations, not, you know, this, this population, you know, this, these climate changes are happening so quickly that the, the things their parents taught them, the things that they survived on for years are no longer things they can depend on. Right. I was struck by a statistic. I think I hear, um, is it Lord Attenborough, who is the Mm -hmm. uh, narrator? mention that like 40 we there's 40 percent less ice in the summers than there was just in 1980 i think that's around the statistic so mm. to sandy's point about it happening so fast you know you can't adapt that quickly yeah. we are children of the 80s <laughs> we sure are right imagine 40 percent of our day-to-day in a living environment changing going right? away there, yeah yeah exactly so startling um, talk to us about ice because i think that this was you know, something that I heard, Sophie, you you talk about in a previous interview, really paint the picture for us of ice as an ecosystem, because, mm. you know, I'm imagining it as a, you know, frozen plane of water, nothing but water. Tell us, tell us why and how I'm wrong. Sure. It's, it's an interesting thing I learned, actually, when I first got into reading about ice, and I realized there's two different types of ice. There's the glaciers, which is land ice, and that's fresh water. Um, so it's snow that falls, gets compressed into ice and then um, forms glaciers and ice sheets. But there's also sea ice, which is very different. It's not snow. It's frozen frozen ocean. Um, and that freezes every year. And it forms around Antarctica and in the Arctic. And that's a very important habitat because unlike land ice, which doesn't have much life at all, sea ice is actually a habitat. It's an upside down world. Um, so underneath, when you look at it, it's all flattened from the surface. But you go underneath the water and it's this... Serengeti, you've got the algae, which are like the plants that grow on the underside. Then you've got all the grazers that come in, which are things like krill and copepods, little tiny animals that kind of forage under there and eat eat this algae. And then following that, you have all things like the the bigger stuff, like mammals and seals, whales, penguins, um, fish, uh, and then eventually polar bears in the north. So um, this whole system is supported, all, all the kind of charismatic um, Arctic and Antarctic um, characters that you think of, like penguins, polar bear seals, they all depend on this sea ice habitat. So when you get this reduction in sea ice that we're seeing, um, it, it's going to affect the food chain. And, um, you know, as, as we lose the sea ice in the north, especially the, the animals, like you say, it's the rate at which it's happening. Um, it's happening too fast at the moment for them to adapt. So, you know, one of the things that I am also struck by with this, um, you know, you've got this entire food chain, as as you mentioned, um, you, you said sort of an upside down Serengeti, you know, one can mm-hmm. probably imagine the Serengeti and, and the different life forces there. But you, you sort of think of a, probably a barren ice cap mm-hmm. um, in the middle of the ocean, whereas, you know, there is this whole ecosystem. Um, what are you seeing in terms of of the effects uh, on that? So you said, you know, they the there's algae underneath, and let's say krill, you know, is is eating that, and then the whales are coming and eating the krill. Um, is there a chain of events of what's happening first? You know, the ice melts, so the algae's not there, and then it trickles down, or or is anything affected in a different sort of order that we may not be aware of? <laughs> um, it's quite complicated, but. Uh, to sort of summarize, so if you if, if you imagine the sea ice as it forms, it's like the soil. So um, if that if the sea ice forms 
later and later each year, then the algae isn't, um, in order for the algae to breed in the summer when the, when the light returns, it has to get frozen into the sea ice as it forms in the winter. And if it all gets used up by um, stuff eating it in the summer months, then the later the sea ice kind of forms in the winter months, the less algae will get frozen in. And so it kind of, that's how it starts to diminish is that mm. it's this, um, it's kind of when it's freezing, there's not enough algae and therefore that affects the next spring, which then affects the quill, which then, you know, and it's a knock-on, knock-on effect. Um, but there's lots of other things like acidification of the oceans and, and temperatures warming, which affects things like crustaceans that form these um, calcium carbonate shells. So there's, it's a multifaceted sort of um, thing going on that's very, very complex. But essentially, if you lose the sea ice, then you haven't got a substrate for the algae to grow on. So it, you're kind of destroying it at that level. Are there any sort of cautionary statistics that you like to throw out there? Because, you know, often we talk about the the, the retro, 40% less ice than in 1980. Mm. But sometimes I find the most startling framings are a look ahead. Um, an mm. example, we at our, our local wonderful zoo here, Philadelphia is the nation's first zoo um, here in the U.S. And they had for Halloween tombstones like in the future, where they were projecting uh-huh. extinction dates. Very sobering. Very, yeah. very like, you know, holy cow, like you're telling me my, you know. Fun for the whole family, Yeah, Sandy. I mean, it was really was quite intense. And, um, and so I'm wondering, you know, what are some of those, hey, if we don't change our behavior, this is what we can expect, statistics, mm. you know, concepts that you learned through this work? Sure. I mean, it's obviously... You know, it's hard to predict and scientists don't want to get caught out by saying something categorically. But, you know, when you look at kind of, I think also to understand the future, you have to understand the past. Um, and when you look at kind of CO2 um, levels and how, you know, past extinction events, CO2 links with, with global temperatures. And for the last 400,000 years, CO2 levels have never gone above 300 parts per million they're now 411 parts per million. So we've already exceeded that. So we know that, you know, with CO2 levels rising, temperature will rise. There's a lag in the system at the moment, but that will happen. We know that 18 of the 19 warmest years have occurred since 2001. So, you know, that's also quite stifling. So it's all heading in that direction. And we know that as the ice caps melt, you know, so this land ice, as it melts, increases sea level. Now, sea level's rising at 3.3 millimetres per year at the moment. Um, so by the end of the century, you know, we could we could be facing 50, 60 metre kind of, um, well, they say if Antarctica goes, it could be up to 120 metres. But by the end of the century, it could be something like 50 metre sea level rise, which will affect, is already affecting places like Bangladesh and all the kind of low-lying coastal areas. Um, so, yeah, I think if we don't, act now and if, if you know like you say businesses are a, a massive part in this like being supporting sustainable businesses and putting our money a lot of people don't realize that when your money's sat in a bank account it's there for the bank to use and invest and why not put it in a bank that supports sustainable businesses so it supports you know renewable energy companies and, and businesses that have um an ethical way of, of dealing with the world and, and are more sustainable in their outlooks and that's what 
Well, I think, I think that's same. that's kind of music to our ears because that's a lot of the type of work that we do at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative and that we talk about here on Dollars and Change. Yeah, Sophie, we're going to take a quick break, but then we're going to come back. Yeah. Listeners, stay with us. Your your head might be hanging, you know, a little low right now. This was we we're talking about the tough stuff. But we we, co- we can get back and we can talk about how we might be able exactly. to turn the ship around. Solutions when we return. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio Sirius XM one thirty two. I'm Carl Ulrich. Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We're back. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM Channel 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Sandy Hunt here with Nick Ashburn. We're continuing our riveting conversation with Sophie Lanfear, director on Netflix's Our Planet. And Sophie, so, you know, thanks so much for sticking with us. We were just getting in before the break uh, to some solutions. And I think that is one of the things also that sets... Um, our planet apart from other types of documentaries, it actually starts to talk about like, hey, we can turn the the ship around and, and this isn't potentially hopeless. So talk to us first a little bit about sort of this call to action and how that might be unique to to this style of filmmaking. Yeah, I think we, we had an opportunity with Netflix with our planet to um, have a, a global platform um, which would see the series all at once. And so I think the aspiration of the series is really um, to spark that kind of global conversation um, about uh, the kind of positive and negative things that humans are doing to the planet uh, through the kind of eyes of wildlife um, and hope that people are kind of emotionally engaged enough to want to do something about it. And and. On this show, as many of our you know regular listeners will know, we talk a lot about. I mean, we talk to entrepreneurs who have you know businesses in and of themselves that are trying to have a social or an environmental impact. Uh, we have investors on our show who talk about how they're deploying capital into companies or projects um, or other types of products that are also trying to drive you know or move the needle on these types of, types of issues. Um, and you started to talk about one. Um, where do you think some of our listeners? could start to think about how they actually affect change to turn this boat around? Mm, I think with climate change, um, it's a a topic and an issue that everyone feels is so massive and so huge that they can't, you know, they feel helpless, that they can't. Mm -hmm. Right. What is one coffee cup recycled in the grand scheme of these walruses? Exactly. Um, But to that, I would say, you know, don't look at it that way. Yes, it might feel enormous, but actually you have choices. All of us have choices in everyday life and actions. Um, and if we all started to kind of choose a more sustainable way of living um, and the companies and pay that little bit more, or sometimes, you know, it might be initially the costs are higher, but if we all do it, then the costs will come down. And if we all put our choices um, into, you know, going to a food market that has compostable plastic uh, um, rather than a plastic one, saying something to the bar that has plastic straw or, you know, just kind of the more pressure we can put on businesses and politics and governments and councils, um, I think the more change we'll start to see. And there can be changes that, you know, it doesn't have to kind of necessarily even 
perfect your life. Everyone thinks, oh, to be green, you have to kind of give up something or you have to, you know, cycle to work and, and do all these things. But actually, we're going to have to switch off fossil fuels. You know, they are a finite resource. And so why not start doing it now whilst, you know, it's an important point in, in the history of humans at this point in time to stop burning fossil fuels. So let's just get on with it. Speaking of, actually, I'm really glad you brought that up. And going back to ICE, um, it's it's actually quite scary to know that in a geopolitical sense, that there's now this race to, uh, you know, get territory or drill for oil in the, you know, the polar north, where historically you wouldn't have been able to access certain reserves. Uh, Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? Yes. Um, Sadly, I I saw that Trump um, also kind of announced that the Arctic uh, it was a good thing because um, it opened up new trade routes that were much quicker to get to um, Asia, uh, which is true. I mean, that's it's it is a fact. You know, it's frightening, but sorry, it is a fact that yeah, it would be it quicker. Is a fact, sadly, um, and it's all the more reason I think um, is to you know be aware of that and that that is going to probably be something that is going to happen in the future, and it's up for us to manage it and to kind of create a path forward that you know is good for the indigenous populations up there that is also good for the wildlife um and it needs to be managed i don't think it should just be a gold rush and a free-for-all um it's but it's the sad truth as as the ice retreats up north it will expose um more opportunities for uh, uh prospecting for oil and gas and also for trade routes I'm really um, glad you use that language gold rush because that's how it sort of feels. I mean, for, to an outsider like me, um, it, it feels like there's just sort of this geopolitical gold rush uh, to be able to access resources or use the, you know, drive ship traffic through it, whatever it is. But it, it does feel like a gold mm. rush to me. I mean, it's it's a, it's a kind of it's a, it's a funny place that we're in at the moment is that, you know, climate change is one of the biggest things that's going to economically break our country. You know, when people start migrating and you start having um, sea level floods and massive storms hitting, especially, you know, the east coast of the USA is very vulnerable. And the east coast of the USA will be hit. You know, I read a, a, something very interesting that the, the gravitational pull of the ice in Antarctica pulls the sea away from, from the east coast of the state. So as you lose that ice, you lose that gravitational pull. And so, of course, you're increasing sea level rise, but it will be felt biggest off the eastern coast of the state. So on the one hand, you've got this fossil fuel support um, and we're burning it and we're melting stuff. And then on the other hand, you've got the kind of economic fallout um, of that. And it's it's a huge, it's going to be a massive problem. So why not switch to renewables? Why are we prospecting for oil and gas? Why aren't we putting the money into solar technologies, wind technologies, hydroelectric power? Um, because that seems to me, you know, the obvious problem. And in the long term, we'll save money if we can combat climate change and, and for our own selfish gains, um, it's a good idea. Yeah, and I just want to make sure that our, when our listeners hear you say things like, why don't we put money into renewables? I think a lot of folks would listen and say, yeah, okay, if I owned a multi-billion dollar company, I'd put money into renewables. But to your point just before the break, you can be looking at your investments and screening for environmental factors that matter to you. Um, you may not know exactly what this looks like, listeners, if, if this isn't an area that you've you know previously spent time exploring. But if you've got a financial advisor, ask them these questions. Um, if you've got a 401k, there are tools online where you can sort of look at the makeup of the funds in that, you know, in your investments and see how they rate on some environmental factors. So 
you may not think of yourself as someone who can, you know, change the landscape of, you know, fossil fuel divestments, but you really can take a step because to your point, Sophie, that money's sitting somewhere every day doing some work. And if folks would like to take more agency in where and how that works, it can help to move the needle. Mm, I, I, I mean, I genuinely didn't think of that until I started this project. I, um, there's a bank account in, well, bank in England called Trilus Bank. I'm sure you have similar in America, but um, they they made the point that yeah, exactly. If you if you're paid, if you have a paycheck and it goes into a bank account, no matter how small or tiny that money is, it's it's being used and invested by the banks, and it, they can invest in whatever they want to. Um, and so you've got to start asking the questions. And if if so, move. You know, I moved my money into Trilus Bank account because it made sense that everything was ethical and sustainable, and I I agreed with their their social. Um, and economic policies and, and and the things they invest in. And so I know that my money, even though it's not, it doesn't feel like a lot, <laughs> I know that it's it's being put into good use and not to bad use. Um, so I, that is definitely something that all of us can do um, and at little cost to our lives. And, you know, one of the things that I struggle with a little bit, um, you know, here we are, and I, and I asked you the question, like, what can our listeners do? Mm-hmm. But one of the th- criticisms that I've heard... Um, very recently that opened my own eyes is sort of this individualization of responsibility for climate change versus holding maybe the big bigger actors or uh, culprits accountable. And so do you think about that? Like, what can we do as individuals versus sort of like, hey, you know, there's just a, a larger system out there that maybe it's governments or otherwise that need to be paying attention to this too? I think it's at every level accountability. I think you know, it amazes me that businesses have got away. I kind of feel that if you produce something, if you produce something physical, you should be responsible from that, from its creation to its death. So that includes a tax to dispose of it. And I can't believe that we've lived so long in this kind of throwaway culture and not had that. I mean, it, to me, it seems crazy. So I think accountability should be across the line. But equally, with it's not just businesses. You know, we as consumers need to be aware. We first have to admit there's a problem. Um, because if we don't do that, nothing will change. And then once we've done that, we have to take the steps necessary to kind of in our own lives, but then also put that upon, you know, we need the choice. How can we choose to live sustainably if, if we can't go to our shops and choose between products that offer us sustainable versus not? Um, so I think you know, it's across the board. And I would just say you, you've got to start taking those steps at every point in your life and putting pressures on others to do the same. And Sophie, since you are so you know deeply knowledgeable about this area, um, but also a consumer living your life, buying groceries, buying food, buying shoes, tell us what you now look for. Um, you know, help our listeners be the the beneficiaries of your experience. You know, is it what t- sort of certifications, labels, materials is, are the real thing? Because at least what we notice here in the U.S., I know it's certainly it happening in other places as well the proliferation of sort of these greenwashing, you know, labels and product packaging and how do you tell what's really environmentally good? So what do you look for now? Because you you have a heck of a lot more experience with this than any of us. Gosh, I, um, it's something I think of all the time. Um, I, I look for, you know, if you're buying any furniture, then you look for, we've got a thing called FFC, which is a Forestry Commission um, sustainable kind of sourced wood. So I always check online and before buying anything if someone like if i think it's dodgy at all i'll go online and usually um if if it's a kind of certified um organization then you can very quickly trace it online and find out whether it's legitimate or not um clothing's a big one polyesters and plastics and microplastics and clothing you know i try to just not buy new clothes um where i mend old things i re-heal my shoes 
um, I tried to buy some like cotton, organic cotton um, products and, you know, limit the stuff with polyester in it. Um, food is a big one. If we all turned a little bit more vegan or vegetarian, I mean, I've cut back on my meat massively um, since working on this series. Now probably 80% vegetarian. Um, and that's the biggest change. I think if everyone did that, there's some outstanding kind of facts about how much we'd curb fossil fuels um, and climate, well, carbon footprint, if we if we all kind of ate less meat, um, because, you know, meat takes up so much resources in terms of uh, agriculture, keep and livestock and space, and um, we could rewild areas and stuff that land that was being used for agriculture um, and, and kind of raising of animals could be turned over to crop and actually need a lot less crop space than you do space for cattle. Um, I mean, there's just across the board, if you're interested, there are plenty of websites out there. I'm not sure who the American kind of services and, and kind of... No, I, I um, wanted the personal story. This is what I wanted. You know, I can't do X anymore. I, I must... <laughs> look, you know, look for this or I stopped eating this. So that's exactly the story. Well, I wanna... and it's interesting, you know, it, it's it, for me when you said, you know, after doing this documentary, after doing this film, and, you know, you can imagine that our listeners, you know, will watch this. Like, I was really struck by this. And I said, hey, Matt, our producer, like, I'd love to get someone from the from our planet on our show to talk about this. So, you know, you were affected by doing it. I'm sure our listeners are affected by watching it. And, you know, what's next for you? I mean, how do you keep this momentum, you know, as sort of part of your career or your own activism? Um, what's next and exciting for you? Um, well, it's, it's, I mean, I just love being like having the chance to be on a show like this and to be asked such intelligent questions and um, to kind of impart some of what we've learned. I just really enjoy I mean, I hope that off the back of our planet that will continue um, because I'd love to be a part of anything like that. I'm working on the next. Uh, Netflix series with Silverback Films, so um, which I can't really speak about. I was going to ask. <laughs> nope. Okay. But there's something coming. Uh, Excellent. Yeah, it'll be another four years, but it's, it's in the making. Um, it's a very different series and a very different um, perspective on on the same problem, but very differently tackled. And mm. it's very interesting because it's a, a perspective that also is educating me a lot in in kind of a very different way about the problems we face. So. so that's exciting. Um, but yeah, I, I would just love to kind of continue imparting knowledge really to people about how they can they can make a difference. We're going to have to have you on though to time with the release this time because we're yes. a little well, a little bit behind from when our planet was released. But if there's something very similar, not maybe not similar in terms of content, but you know the problem the next, we'll we'll have to have you back on. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so let's thank you. We'll wrap up with this question, Sophie. What what action has our planet spurred? You know, have you guys gotten response from you know organizations that say say they're seeing an uptick in? Uh, environmental interest because of the film are are viewers reaching out and asking what more they can do um, because we do have the luxury of having this month or whatever since it's come out uh, what are you seeing and hearing um it's been amazing the, the kind of reception i think um i mean one of the most incredible things that we've had partnering with wwf the world wildlife fund charity based in the well it's global but um particularly the uk section is that we got the series, you know, we got to talk. David Attenborough went to talk at the at Davos, which is the World Economic Forum. He also, the World Bank, um, had a meeting uh, in Washington last month. And so, you know, there's an amazing stat that just 100 companies are responsible for 71% of global emissions. And 
talking to some of the most influential business leaders um, and banks and having that on their radar and hopefully getting through to people at that level. Um, you know, very few people who are rich and powerful but can do a lot of good um, and can help change the world. So from a kind of policy and uh, monetary kind of sense, that was a massive achievement. Um, and I know it's something that they're all keen to kind of support. Um, but then on a kind of global, like you say, everyday people, um, just had an incredible, a lot of people have contacted me actually from all over the world. Um, some in kind of... Uh, Spanish and yeah, I have to Google translate them all. But yeah, the only <laughs> messages I've been having is just like, thank you. You know, it's hard to watch, but it's important. And thank you for making it. And what can we do? And I write back to every single one, giving them ideas of what they can do and how they can make a difference. Good so, for you. Um, That's above and yeah. beyond. But we're, we're grateful for it. And um, it's, it's in a multiplier effect. You'll never be able to calculate. Uh, but must be a great feeling knowing that much, you know, activity is happening around the world because of the uh, inspiration and what's the right word here? Awareness. Awareness and, you know, shock and awe of this, of this beautiful, beautiful series. So Sophie Lanfair, director of Netflix's Our Planet, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Sandy. Thanks, Nick. Pleasure to be here. We look forward to having you back on in four years. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.